You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Once again, we are honored to have Father Paul on the show. It's been wonderful to be able to listen to what Father Paul has to teach us. Father, in listening to your audio, one of the things that struck me is how we have two exiles really in the Old Testament, one in Egypt and one in Assyrian Babylonia, Mesopotamia. And I know a lot of people assume that it's Egypt because that was the reigning power at the time. But I think that there's also literary reasons. It's not necessarily a historical reason why it would be Egypt. Can you explain to us the function of Egypt as a country in this exile? Well, first of all, you mentioned that the so-called second exile is in Mesopotamia, including Assyria, where Israel was exiled, and then Babylonia, where Judah was exiled. So we're talking about these two as one and we'll call it Babylonia or Mesopotamia. Now, to my mind, the so-called first exile to Egypt is clearly a fabricated setup to prepare the hearers to understand the value and function of the second exile, actually. The exile into Egypt is unprovable, but the fact that scripture was written and produced as scripture in Mesopotamia reflects the fact that the writers were there. So Assyria and Babylonia, which is the Mesopotamian exile, is one and happens only once. But notice how the one in Egypt is recurring. And I'll begin with basic examples. We have it in Genesis 12, where Abraham, Abram at the time, went down to Egypt and was rescued from Egypt. Then Later in the book of Genesis, we have the children of Jacob following the same pattern. So there is something going on here. Furthermore, that Babylon was already in the author's purview when he dealt with the exile into Egypt can be seen in the self-contained story of Genesis 14. Everybody knows that if you drop this chapter, no one is going to miss it, which is two chapters after the exile of Abram into Egypt. We hear of Abram being successful in his attack on the king's way up north of Damascus and his return to Salem, the city of peace, whose king is Melchizedek. And everybody knows that in the book of Jeremiah, we have the reference to Jerusalem, Zion, as the city of righteousness, which is the same root from which we have Sadek, righteousness, and also the king of righteousness. Now, righteousness is a legal term, as we hear again in the same book of Jeremiah in chapter 31, the new covenant and the new law. So this chapter 14 of Genesis is very important. Now, another aspect of the so-called exile to Egypt is that in both cases, meaning the case of Abram and the case of children of Jacob, the reason behind it is famine, very clearly in the text, which, by the way, plays a role in the story of Isaac's being tempted to go to Egypt in Genesis 26. But obviously he does not go. So we have famine, famine, famine connected with Egypt. The reaction of Isaac is different. He lives in peace with the surrounding nations. 
he does not appeal to them as his father Abram did in Genesis 12, nor does he conquer them as Abram does in Genesis 14. So the attitude of Isaac is very important, and I stress this in all my writings and audio, that Abram is born out of the earth of the promise and dies in it. Jacob is born in the earth of promise and dies outside it. Isaac is born lives and dies in the earth of promise he does not even go after his wife as his son will do to upper mesopotamia add to this that jacob betrays the covenant of this circumcision in genesis 34 and if not he his two sons slay the outside nation and he goes down to egypt so the attitude of Jacob and Abraham is presented not as it should be the way Isaac behaves. So that is clearly intentional, putting all these things together. And the intention, to my mind, and according to me, it's very clear, is that the author was preparing for that central lesson of Scripture, that the real bread, it's central because we find it all over the place, also in the New Testament. The real bread that ensures life, remember famine, the real bread that ensures life are the words of God, his instruction inscribed in the law at the exodus from Egypt. Notice the law is given outside Egypt in the wilderness. That is why the first so-called exodus, very interestingly, assumedly unto liberation, ends up with the destruction of all those who left Egypt. So the reaction of the hearer, what kind of liberation is that? Still, the good news is the lesson of this story. It is the Torah, the law, that gives life. However, its beneficence, where this aspect of the law is implemented, will be seen only in the second exodus or so-called second exodus from babylonia which is presented in ezekiel 20 as an exodus unto judgment by measure notice the first one was unto the liberation of all in exodus 20 the exodus from mesopotamia is not unto liberation of all is unto judgment at least half of the people or roughly half that will be destroyed now in my commentary on ezekiel i showed that the original text is very clear the word measure has nothing to do with numbers but it has to do with the measure of the law and at the end of Exodus 20, those who will be saved will be transferred to the holy mountain where the totality of Israel is the totality of those who follow God's rule. So we don't have numbers anymore. We have just a flock that survives because the flock follows the voice of the shepherd. Now, my mentioning the shepherd sounds as a jump for my hearers but it is not so because again we have an interesting aspect in the so-called first exile because there moses the lawgiver remember he was asked to bring the people to the mountain where the law was shared is said to be a shepherd of flock 
Isaac, Ru'etzon, like Abel in Genesis, which means that he rules by the voice of the law. And here we see the immediate connection with Ezekiel chapter 34 and Isaiah chapter 40, where God is the shepherd, and Isaiah chapter 44, where his minister Cyrus is a shepherd. So we have here a parallelism between the two exoduses, if you like, which means that the first is just made up. The first teaching of the law outside Egypt took place in the wilderness outside the Egypt of the pharaohs and its buildings. But we have the same thing in Ezekiel, where God appears at river Kebar in the land of exile, away from Jerusalem and its temple. And we all know how Ezekiel in the following chapters criticizes the temple. Now go back to Egypt. We see that in Egypt, where the text tells us Israel was before God saved him, actually already in Egypt, it is the hand of God in Joseph who saves both Egypt and Israel. So the lesson is very powerful. It perturbs the hearer, and the hearer is at a loss until he or she gets to Ezekiel and understand what's going on. And again in Ezekiel in chapter 48, the only city is surrounded by open land, which reminds us of the wilderness. The way in Isaiah 2, we have the mountain of the teaching where both Israel and the nations are invited to go up to listen to the law. If all this is taken into consideration, then one understands the message of Jeremiah who said to the Judahites, do not fight the Babylonians. They are going to conquer your city because you did not obey the law of God and you're going to be taken into exile. When you get there, settle, plant vineyards, build houses and live there. And, which is very powerful in the book of Jeremiah, and I think it is intentional, the authors present Jeremiah as have not Listen to his own teaching. Notice how Jeremiah ends in Egypt and does not go to Babylon. But this is a reminder of what happened with Moses. Can you imagine Moses, the lawgiver, died before entering the land and he didn't get there. So that is the bottom line in both cases that it is the teaching of God through his voice. And in my commentary on Jeremiah, I stressed the importance of the term voice in Jeremiah, that one is to follow wherever one is. You know, because when you tell a story, you need to put it in a certain location. But all these things are really part of the story, and it is just the teaching that remains. So I believe it's a very impressive piece of literature, this play on the so-called first and second exile and the so-called first and second exodus and the book of revelation tells us at the end that the city of god is a city not made by the hand of man which means you can't localize it in revelation jerusalem is as much a harlot and isaiah said this already in chapter one as babylon it doesn't make any difference and what remains is precisely the book of the law as we have it 
in Deuteronomy, and that is why, and I would like to end with this, God sent Moses, the shepherd of flock, to Egypt to bring the people out of Egypt to this mountain to listen to his teaching that will give them life even in the barren wilderness. In thinking about Ezekiel 23, one of the things that always struck me is how the prophet is accusing the people not only of being idolaters already when they were in Egypt, but also that there was even a division between Judah and Israel, the southern and northern kingdoms. So it doesn't seem like Ezekiel is even looking at Exodus as a historical place. So what is the function then of Egypt specifically in that context of Ezekiel 23? I believe one has to connect it with the entire biblical story because the biblical story begins with the exile in Egypt. So things were already bad there, meaning that the exile was not the right place to be. The other thing, according to me, is Egypt is next door. You know, you can run to it very quickly to find a solution to your famine. But this is just treacherous. It is not so. Ezekiel stresses the fact that the people failed to recognize that God is the only God and they were idolaters. To be idolater means to opt for another deity as being the source of your life. This is what it means. You cannot find this even in Hosea. You find an oblique mention of that. But I believe more and more that it's not so unique if one takes into consideration what I mentioned earlier, that we have this very interesting and striking story of Abram going into Egypt and coming out. He almost got stuck, and that is very important because in scholarly circles, they look at this story as the so-called ancestress in danger. In other words, should Sarah or Sarai have been taken by Pharaoh and become his wife, then Sarah would not have been the grandmother of Israel. It's no joke. And yet, Abraham, Abraham risked that. So there is a powerful lesson there. I mean, that's my take on the matter. The teaching of Ezekiel in 23 is clearly stated in 23, but I think that the more one listens to the text, one hears it all over the place, to my mind. Do you think there's any connection with Sarai and the risk of sleeping with Pharaoh and then the accusation in Ezekiel 23 that they were sleeping with Pharaoh and that they were being touched by these men and that sort of thing? Well, it could be. I cannot answer immediately because I never thought about that. But it is viable. You know, one has to take each story on its own ground. The way, if you remember, I always teach, you take a story in Luke and a story in Matthew, you cannot sing them immediately by adding an aspect in the story of transfiguration of Luke to Matthew. I think this is not allowed, should not be allowed, because the story of Matthew is part of his book. Now, once you clear that, if there is a parallel, it is there and you can point it out. And that's why, you know, debates are very important. It's not it is so or it is not so. One has to test the theory. So, Father Paul, on the podcast, Richard and I repeat something often that we learned from you in the classroom, which is that the Bible 
reads itself, it interprets itself metaphorically. It doesn't need our interpretation. And I think what's difficult about that is trying to figure out as disciples of the Bible, when you can read the metaphors of book A in conjunction with book B. It's very tempting what Richard said about this idea of idolatry and harlotry in Ezekiel, and then the harloting out of Sarai and so forth. Just for our listeners who are making their own effort to learn how to read the Bible carefully, what are some tips you could give us about how to test the linking of metaphors and symbols as we read books in parallel? Let's begin with the general teaching. Take, for instance, the Sunday school is just a reflection of theology that is made up by human beings. You ask anyone, say the word Exodus, immediately, immediately, 99.99%, if not 100%, would think and would speak about the exodus out of Egypt. To be honest, we all know that. But there is another exodus in Genesis 12 beforehand. <laughs> so you ask the person, how about that? Then you move to Ezekiel and you say, how about that in 20? You cannot just begin to give your answer. Remember the famous Chrysostom, who himself coined that scripture, it's its own interpreter, said also that we have first to know the text, because if we don't know the text, we shall never ask the right questions to that text. And if you can't ask the right questions, you'll never get the right answer. Here, I want to interject something, if I may. I think it's really important for the podcast audience to understand that typically when people speak about poetry, about literature, about the Bible, about politics, about the news, whatever they speak about, what they're doing is just speaking. And I think one of the things that Father Paul has emphasized and taught us is that you can't just speak. I think that's the deep point here, that Father Paul didn't want to answer Richard's question until he went through the empirical data of the text, which is a lengthy, difficult process, which is why I'm so moved by your answer, Father Paul, that you don't answer with an answer. You answer by going back to the text and giving examples from the text and working through the question with the data in hand, so to speak. I think that's an important point for all of us to keep going back to that. The text is the subject matter. The text is the lens. The text is the data. The text is its own interpretation. It is the alpha and the omega, I mean, yeah. <laughs> because that's what you have in our tradition. At one point, everybody keeps silence, and then you have a book that is opened. And I keep repeating to the people that, even if your people come to church every Sunday and by the third year, they know, like, why should you go through the lengthy reading of the prodigal son when everybody knows it? Why don't you just say the reading is the prodigal son and start with your sermon? All I'm saying is that the rubrics do not allow that. You see, my reference is the fact, and in this particular case in the liturgy, the fact are the rubrics, not what you would have preferred. And one has to answer why. Say you have a laryngitis that morning and you have a prepared a great sermon. You just apologize <laughs> to the people. You say, you know, <laughs> because my, the sermon are my words. They are not <laughs> scripture. And people have to be taught that way. 
And for those who tell me, but this is a scandal, well, uh, remember Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. (laughs) That's the message. And as you yourself mentioned, Richard came up with something I had not thought of. So my first reaction was to show that his question is acceptable and viable. I did not say, no, it's not so. But then I don't have the answer for the time being. And then one can look for the answers. I think that this example is so helpful because theologians are typically in the mood of approaching people with answers. I have a question about something. What is the answer? Which makes the person speaking the reference. And I think the way you handled Richard's question is instructive because it reminds us that all of us, including our teacher, are disciples of the Bible, and ultimately it has to be the content of the Bible that is the canon against which these questions and ideas are tested. So really thankful for today's conversation. Thank Thank you, you, Father. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.